0: And, and congressmen and, and, and judges are, are reading these stories, uh, and they start to think, well, maybe we're not getting the truth uh, from the Nixon administration, uh, despite all of its denials.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew, and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They're committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. Watergate left an indelible mark on American politics. I mean, it was so impactful that to this day the word Watergate alone is enough to evoke not just the events that transpired at the Watergate itself, but the downfall of the Nixon administration. And of course, American culture struggles to last six months without appending the suffix gate to something. There's actually an entire Wikipedia page of these, from Gamergate to Deflategate to something called "gategate." I'm not making that up. But it wasn't just American politics that were forever changed by Watergate. American journalism was as well. And so, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Watergate on June 17, 2022, we turn our attention in this episode to the role of journalism in the Watergate scandal. And helping us with this task is John Marshall, Associate Professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, and IMC. Marshall is the author of two books that interrogate the Watergate scandal. First, Watergate's Legacy in the Press, The Investigative Impulse, and a new book, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. John, welcome to the show. Now, our focus is on Watergate and we'll get to your extensive research into Watergate and the press in a few minutes, but your new book Clash shows you're interested in much more than just the Nixon administration. So, can you say a little bit about where that interest comes from?
0: Sure, Ken. And first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big I'm a big fan of it and I'm I'm honored to be part of it. I actually first became interested in presidents at age 5 when I had the uh, <laughs> chance to Meet Richard Nixon. My, my family was on a vacation in San Diego uh, and he was staying at a hotel down the beach um, right after he won the Republican nomination in 1968. And my dad thought it'd be a great idea if my brother and I went over uh, to meet him. So we walked uh, what seemed like miles to me at the time at age five. It was probably maybe less than a mile. But uh, we stood outside the hotel and, and Nixon walked by and my dad shouted hello. And Nixon came over and I shook his hand and I've been interested in presidents ever since. Uh, now, when Nixon uh, started to have his struggles with Watergate, uh, my mom always had these Senate Watergate hearings on TV, and I would watch and started to follow it in the newspapers. And my fascination with presidents has increased since then.
1: Gotcha. Well, and and you've written about administrations as your book shows, from from John Adams right up through Trump. So lead us in here. What made Nixon's relationship with the press so different from all of those other presidents? What was unique about his administration and the press?
0: Well, I think Nixon uh, did three things uh, that were important in terms of his relationship with the press. First of all, he was the first president to really cast the press um, journalist as, as an enemy of the American public. Now, every the president before that had, had at least grumbled about how they were treated by the press and sometimes skirmished with them, sometimes uh, even tr- tried to restrict or manip- manipulate them and, or even try censorship. But Nixon was the first to come up with the strategy, uh, in the words of his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, to make the press a useful enemy. Uh, some uh, an institution that they could rail against like they would um, in a similar way against crime or communism. The press was this uh, institution uh, that they cast as being dangerous to the American public. And we certainly uh, have seen uh, the fruits of that uh, since then with, with other politicians, particularly Donald Trump. Uh, the second thing I think that was significant about Nixon's relationship with the press is that his administration made a concerted effort to use the machinery of the federal government to really attack journalists, uh, to use the IRS uh, to audit their tax returns as a way to try to intimidate them, uh, to have the FBI uh, do uh, checks on journalists. uh, And in the uh, homophobic uh, atmosphere of that era, they they tried to see if they could catch uh, reporters Having gay or lesbian relationships, so they could use that for blackmail purposes. Uh, they had uh, the uh, Federal Communications Commission try to intimidate uh, the the networks. Uh, so it was an effort to use uh, all the the levers that were available to them available to them in the federal government uh, as an assault on journalism. Uh, then finally, uh, the Nixon administration was the first uh, to put together a White House Communications Office. Uh, there had been Press secretaries for decades uh, before that, who would work with reporters, answer questions, uh, sometimes try to limit what information reporters got. But the Nixon administration uh, was the first to really have a comprehensive communication strategy. Uh, with H.R. Uh, Haldeman, the chief of staff, came from an advertising agency, uh, so he had he had the conception of uh, the media as as something that you could use really for effective promotional purposes. Uh, And they had a strategy of trying to, as much as possible, avoid the White House press corps, uh, the reporters who were day-to-day trying to cover the White House and might have the the toughest questions for the president, uh, and instead tried to use uh, smaller local uh, TV stations, smaller local newspapers um, as avenues for interviews uh, where the questions were less likely to be threatening. Uh, And when Nixon went out in public to make sure he was uh, doing so in front of hand-picked Audiences who were guaranteed to ask him soft questions, uh, rather than uh, the mixed kind of audience that previous politicians would have tried to to campaign with.
1: I see. So, you know, we want to turn to Watergate, but before we do, Nixon had a, a history with the press going long before Watergate, like like decades, right? Does Does he ever get along with the media? Like, what is what is the Nixon press origin story here?
0: His his story with the press is is fascinating because on the whole through most of his career, he actually got pretty good press coverage. When he first ran for Congress in 1946, the local newspaper editor was also an official with the local Republican Party, and Nixon was running on the Republican ticket. Uh, so the local newspaper was a big backer of him. The Los Angeles Times, which was the dominant newspaper in Southern California where he was running, uh, was a big backer of him. And when Nixon ran for governor of california in 1962 the la times even let nixon have a regular column in the newspaper uh, to promote his viewpoints Uh, when nixon became a national figure as a congressman and then a senator and and vice president uh, time magazine which was the leading news magazine uh, usually gave him favorable coverage so did readers digest which was uh through most of those years the most widely read magazine in the country Uh, and when he first became president uh he got generally uh, favorable reviews from most of the press. When he ran for reelection in 1972, uh, more than 70% of newspapers endorsed him, only 5% endorsed his opponent, George McGovern, and then the rest uh, remained neutral in the race. So most of the time, Nixon got at least neutral or often good coverage uh, from most of the outlets of the news media. But the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and a few others uh, were consistently tough on him, and that's, that's what he remembered. Uh, and That's what stuck in his craw, and that's what made him feel particularly vengeful uh, towards the press.
1: Hmm. Well, so, so June 17, 2022 is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, and that's our focus here. But I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with Watergate. It's been 50 years, so uh, let's not dwell on the details, but could you give us a rundown of what led up to the incident at the Watergate 50 years uh, previously, and what was it that transpired there?
0: Sure. Uh, Nixon was very upset about information leaks from his White House. Uh, There had been the Pentagon Papers case a year ago when the New York Times and then the Washington Post and then, Uh, More than a dozen other newspapers uh, printed a a secret history of the Vietnam War uh, that Nixon uh, resisted uh, having published. Uh, He was very angry about that. Uh, He was very angry at the New York Times when it revealed that the United States was secretly and illegally uh, bombing the country of Cambodia. So he wanted to stop leaks at all costs. And he had his aides create a unit in the White House that became known as the plumbers, uh, for stopping leaks. And they became a really uh, a criminal element uh, within the White House. Uh, They burglarized offices. Uh, They talked about assassinating syndicated columnist Jack Anderson. Uh, They talked about firebombing the Brookings Institute, which was a Washington think tank. Uh, And they did, uh, in more than a dozen instances, uh, they illegally wiretapped uh, journalists and uh, people who worked in the White House to try to figure out where the leaks were coming from. Out of the plumbers came a man by the name of G. Gordon Liddy, uh, who was uh, a, a, a very interesting character, uh, <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Um, he uh, bragged about having once bit the, the head off of a, of a rat and bragged about once holding his hand over a candle until it burned, show so how, it, how tough he was. Uh, he he had been a federal prosecutor who who shot a gun out off in the middle of a courtroom once, uh, so he was like this wild character uh, who was associated with the plumbers and became a, a, a counsel for Nixon's re-election campaign. Uh, Liddy came up with a plan before uh, the 1972 Democratic convention, uh, as as Nixon was preparing for his re-election. Uh, to do whatever he could to sabotage uh, the Democratic efforts. Uh, this included blackmail, it included kidnapping people, it included using prostitutes to try to um, ensnare uh, Democratic VIPs uh, so they could be blackmailed, included spying on, on, on Democrats. And he talked about this plan with the Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell, who then went on to run Nixon's reelection campaign. Uh, and Nixon's uh, the, the white house counsel, John Dean. So top lawyers in the country talking about this totally illegal plan. Uh, and instead of stopping it, uh, they just told him to come back with a, a, a more modest plan, uh, which Liddy did. And that plan was to try to eavesdrop on the democratic national committee headquarters at the Watergate hotel and office complex. Uh, so Liddy and, uh, Others uh, of the plumbers got together a, a crew of people, uh, including uh, James McCord, who was the security director for Nixon's re-election campaign, uh, to break into the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate. Uh, they actually failed once. Uh, they, they, they accidentally locked themselves into a banquet room instead of getting into the Democratic headquarters. Uh, <laughs> they, got in, um, they got in a second time and planted eavesdropping devices and, and copied some papers, uh, but when they when they got out, they realized that the wiretaps they had placed did not work very well, uh, was not getting good information either. They couldn't, the sound quality was bad or they were mostly picking up office gossip. Uh, so they were ordered to go back in another time. Uh, and that time they got caught. And this was the early morning of June 17th. Uh, so Watergate is, was literally the break-in of the Democratic headquarters um, at the Watergate office complex, uh, in which uh, the five burglars were arrested and then eventually uh, Gordon Liddy, um, Howard Hunt, who was another of the plumbers, and uh, were also arrested along the way. Uh, But the Watergate came to symbolize uh, the whole White House crime spree, which uh, John Mitchell, the Attorney General, called the, the White House horrors uh, which included things like uh, the illegal wiretapping, the break-ins, uh, illegal campaign contributions, trying to sabotage the campaigns of, of, of the Democratic campaigns, uh, and as we discussed, using the machinery of the federal government to go after Nixon's political opponents. So that's that's Watergate in a nutshell.
1: Sure, no, and it, it, it's it's a really complex event. So. After, after Watergate occurred, how did reporters initially handle that story? Did they understand what they had or the, did, did they make that connection with the, the White House immediately? I mean, I would think that would take time, right?
0: That's right. Uh, the, there was a flurry of stories right after the break-in. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was an interesting story and, and it, it made headlines for for a couple of days for, for many news outlets. It was, it was on the evening news. Uh, but most people didn't know what to make of it, uh, why, why would anyone really be breaking into the opposition's campaign headquarters? And the idea that somehow the White House or the president's reelection ca- campaign could be connected to to it just seemed completely far-fetched. And uh, a lot of the news articles referred to it as a as a caper, as, as if it were part out part of a some kind of comedy movie or, or something like that. So within a few days, uh, most of the news media attention to Watergate uh, began to dwindle. Uh, and, and that was true for about a month or so. Uh, and then the New York Times actually had a, had a, a key article uh, that traced uh, the money that had ended up in one of the burglars' bank account uh, to a, a mysterious lawyer in, in Mexico City who had deposited uh, large sums of money into his bank account. Uh, and then Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post followed that up and found that that money actually came specifically from Nixon's re-election campaign. Uh, and that started them on a whole string of stories that began to unravel the, the Watergate mystery.
1: Well, so I definitely want to talk more about Woodward and Bernstein. We, they're, they're such an important part of the story. But you know what what was it that drove reporters to continue continue pursuing the story after that interest dwindled? I mean, does that does it speak? It, it seems to me like it might speak toward the relationship between Nixon and the press that they were looking for. They, they didn't let it go, right? But I guess they wouldn't necessarily have had that connection to Nixon in the first place. Was it animus toward Nixon uh, by the press that pushed them to keep pushing on this story? or Or why not let it go after a month?
0: Well, most—it's important to remember—most of the White House press corps did not push the story, did not did not follow it. They were uh, they accepted the denials of of Nixon and his aides that they had nothing to do with it, and, and they moved on to other stories uh, and and were accepting of of the official version of things. Uh, so it was very few reporters um, who actually pursued it. Uh, Walter Ruggerberg of the New York Times was one. Sandy Smith of Time magazine had had some had some scoops, but they tended to be uh, somewhat buried uh, in, in time. They, time didn't play them up. Uh, it, Jack Nelson and, and Ron Ostrow of The L.A. Times uh, had an important story. Uh, but most most reporters were not pursuing it. But there were all these tantalizing leads. Like why did um, Howard Hunt, who was one of the people arrested? Why did he have a White House, a White House office? Uh, and where did the, you know? Why did the, these burglars have a hundred dollars uh, in bills stuffed in their in their pockets? It, it wasn't a usual kind of burglary. There, were, there were all these strange things about it. Uh, so there were a few reporters who who kept digging a little bit. Uh, and then once the connection was the, the the money connection was made with the Nixon campaign, that's really when Woodward and Bernstein became the the prime reporters. Who, who followed the story, and it's important to note they weren't political reporters; uh, they, they were local city reporters. So they weren't the ones hearing the official denials from the White House. Uh, they were treating it as if it were a crime story, which 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 it was, and that's why they they were more successful at it.
1: Well, that's so interesting. That yeah, it's so it's not that political core that's that's focused on this. How how did they impact coverage of the scandal in the end? If they're coming at it from that city perspective, what? Where do they take the story then, and where? What? 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 How do they follow these clues toward toward the White House?
0: They showed, uh, in addition to that initial story, say, showing that it was Nixon campaign cash who had paid the burglars. Uh, they eventually showed that uh, John Mitchell, who I mentioned earlier, the former Attorney General, uh, and then at that point the head of uh, Nixon's reelection campaign. He had had personal control over that campaign money. Um, and eventually uh, they found that uh, Bob Haldeman, the chief of staff, also was one of the people who had control over that, that, that secret campaign slush fund. Uh, so they were able to take the Watergate story uh, from these sort of fringe characters in Nixon's orbit to people who were right at the very center of Nixon's orbit. Uh, They and and some of the other reporters revealed also the extent of Nixon's uh, sabotage campaign against uh, other Democratic candidates. Uh, Nixon was particularly concerned about Senator Edmund Muskie of of Maine, who was considered the Democratic frontrunner at one point. Uh, And they did uh, several things to try to sabotage uh, Muskie's campaign, which they did effectively, uh, including uh, before the crucial New Hampshire primary. Uh, where, where Muskie had been leading in the polls. Uh, they published a, a, a fake letter that said that uh, Muskie had insulted uh, uh, French, uh, people of French-Canadian descent, uh, which <laughs> there are a lot of in New Hampshire, uh, and that, that fake letter that, that Muskie had, had made a slur against French-Canadians uh, hurt him in the New Hampshire primary, as did, as did some of the other sabotage ex- efforts, uh, which in the end uh, helped uh, George McGovern become the Democratic candidate, which was exactly what Nixon wanted, because he correctly thought that McGovern would be a a weaker person to run against in the 1972 general election.
1: Interesting. So, you know, in in the the wake of, of Watergate, the Nixon administration doesn't immediately crumble in the face of this reporting by Woodward, Bernstein and others. But the scandal does eventually devolve into a crisis for Nixon. So what is the press's role in the eventual collapse of the Nixon White House?
0: Well, as the Washington Post and others are publishing these stories and uh, CBS News in, in October of 1972 devoted about two thirds of one of its evening newscasts to the Watergate story, it, it put it on the agenda of, of official Washington senators and, and congressmen and, and, and judges are, are reading these stories uh, and they start to think, well, maybe we're not getting the truth. Uh, from the Nixon administration, uh, despite all of its denials. Uh, and there were a couple of, of key moments uh, that happened in early uh, late winter, early spring of 1973. One was that Nixon's interim FBI director, L. Patrick Gray, uh, went up to this, the Senate to testify uh, in order to be, Nixon had nominated him to be the permanent FBI director, so he had to go through uh, hearings for his nomination. And one of the first questions that, that Sam Irvin, who was chairing that committee, asked him about, referred to some Washington Post stories uh, about Watergate. And Gray, for for reasons we're still not quite sure of, began to spill some of the beans uh, <laughs> about uh, the Nixon cover-up of Watergate and destruction of documents uh, and that uh, Nixon's uh, White House counsel, John Dean, was was getting all the reports from the FBI and uh, effectively uh, trying to uh, cover up some of the crimes. So that, so Patrick Gray starting to spill the beans was a key moment. And then in the courtroom of, of, of John Sirica, who was at the trial, uh, overseeing the trial of the original seven Watergate defendants, the, the five burglars plus Gordon Liddy and, and, and Howard Hunt, uh, said he, he didn't think he was getting the truth um, at that trial. And, and Seymour Hersh of the New York Times published a key story that uh, the Nixon's people were paying hush money uh, to the five five burglars uh, to commit perjury and and not to connect uh, their burglary to to anyone else in the Nixon administration or or the Nixon campaign. So Sirica was seeing these articles and and he was ready to impose some very uh, tough uh, penalties uh, when when these people were convicted. Uh, and then one of them, James McCord, who I mentioned earlier, that who had been head of Nixon's reelection security and was one of the people caught up the Watergate, wrote a letter to Sirica saying, "You know what? They're, you know they're right. Um, we <laughs> haven't. Been, there's been great pressure on us to commit perjury, uh, and there were people uh, higher up who were connected to this." And that really opened the door to the idea uh, that, that Nixon had not been telling the truth and his aides had not been telling the truth. And the rest of the, water, uh, the Washington press corps really began to jump on the story um, at that point. Uh, and, and, and that led to the, uh, uh, the Senate Watergate uh, hearings uh, later that spring.
1: Sure. So you write in Clash that Nixon, Nixon's war on the press outlived him. So I want to ask you, how is that so? Like, what's the legacy of all this? And specifically, what about the legacy of Watergate?
0: Well, Nixon, as I mentioned earlier, was really the first president to tr- publicly portray the press as, as, as an enemy. And he was actually, his administration was the first to start referring to the press as the media, uh, the media, which sounds more like a big institution, less less personal, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, sounds sounds more intimidating and disparaging uh, the media has has, has now become a, a cottage industry among among some <laughs> politicians. Uh, and certainly Donald Trump made that a, a centerpiece of his presidency. So I think in that to that extent, uh, Watergate uh, is still having uh, an, an impact. And then I think presidents since Nixon have become. Much more effective on the whole to knowing how to not let uh, their um, personal animus uh, towards the press translate into illegal acts. Um, at least as far as we know, uh, they've been a lot more careful about uh, what they did uh, to make sure that they weren't weren't caught in, in, in doing things uh, like using the IRS to go after journalists um, as, as Nixon had been.
1: hmm. So we we have one last question, and we ask it to all of our guests, and I'm really interested to hear what your answer might be. In your opinion, why does journalism history matter?
0: Ken, I love this question. I think it matters tremendously, because if we think about it, what people know about the world around them beyond their own personal observations or their own personal conversations comes from media, uh, including journalism it's It's how we know things about what's going on about government and politics uh, to our entertainment and culture and and sports and any other kind of information that we get, whether it's from TV or radio or social media or 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 the web or or magazines or newspapers uh, we're getting a lot of in, of our information about what we know about the world uh, from the media and so if we're going to understand how the media is shaping Our perceptions of of reality uh both through information and sometimes increasingly through misinformation now we we need to understand how we got here how 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 it became this way what what were the forces that, that 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 shaped the media world that we got to today and um i firmly believe if we're going to clearly navigate uh the way the the media presents itself today uh, we need to study media history uh, to give us an effective map uh, for, for how we got here uh, to, to increase that understanding. And then I would add, just the study of, of journalism history is just also a lot of fun. There's a lot of great <laughs> stories. It, it's fascinating, uh, that, that, that interplay of, of, of reporters and, and, and the world around them. And you get a lot of great characters, as, as there were with the Watergate story. So in addition to being important, I just think it's really interesting and fun.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you, Ken, for the opportunity. I thoroughly enjoyed it, too.
1: Well, that's it for this episode. Again, John's new book is Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. It's a great read. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.